Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on. And the Stakes Sauber team is the latest to launch its 2024 Formula One car, and the first in a long time to catch the eye with a new livery. Almost simultaneously, Williams launched its new season and less dramatic livery in an event in New York. But what should we expect from two of the teams that were towards the lower end of the championship last year? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to talk about all things Sauber and Williams is Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Scott, uh, welcome. Before we get into the main business of the day of this podcast, we should talk about the other big story that's emerged today, which is that Red Bull Formula One team principal Christian Horner is under investigation by Red Bull over allegations. This emerged this afternoon. You did a little bit of chasing on this. So what can you tell people about that situation? Yeah, not a huge amount more than what people have probably either seen read online or uh, maybe... Uh, seen a couple of the news reports like Sky Sports F1's news report for example um, it's obviously um, not there's not a huge amount of detail that, that we can offer while that there is an investigation going on especially as Red Bull's position on it is that it's not appropriate to comment um, much more beyond a statement that Red Bull in Austria um, so this is GmbH basically HQ for Red Bull rather than the, the racing organisation that Horner is CEO and team principal of that, that has commented so the, you're right. The the story initially came out in the Telegraph in 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 the Netherlands. Um, the allegations are of uh, inappropriate behaviour from from Horner and misconduct. Um, Red Bull has said uh, I have um, the statement from Red Bull in Austria given to me. And Red Bull say that after being made aware of certain recent allegations, the company launched an independent investigation. This process, which is already underway, is being carried out by an external specialist barrister. The company takes these matters extremely seriously and the investigation will be completed as soon as practically possible. And like I said, it wouldn't, they believe it would be inappropriate to comment further at this time. So not a huge amount of detail. Um, you obviously can't jump to conclusions. You need to let this process play out. But it's obviously very severe for Red Bull to have taken this, um, this level of action to even just to, to scrutinise the claims. And with Red Bull's launch just around the corner, I would expect, you can't rush these things, but I would expect that everybody would like this to be resolved one way or another as soon as possible. Yes, and we will let that process play out. As Red Bull has said, they're taking it seriously. So we'll come back to this when there's some more tangible information to talk about and get into what's happened and what's the implications of all of this. But yes, that's a big story that's going to run for the uh, for the foreseeable until that's all resolved. Well, let's get on to the main business of the podcast, which is launches. The Sauber launch, Stake F1 team, as it How was, was called. How was it? You were there. Uh, well, yeah, I was indeed, yeah. It wasn't too far away from me, relatively local. It was at London's Guildhall, which, for those not familiar, is it's kind of the uh, the town hall of the City of London. And for those who don't know, the actual City of London, the square mile, as, as it's called, is actually a very small part of what we think of as London. And the Guildhall's effectively been the town hall of that. And there's there's been a Guildhall there going back hundreds of years, so it's a historic building. So a really, really uh, nice venue. They didn't give a great explanation for why exactly they were hosting it there, but it's all about new start and excitement. So it was all very nice. And- when I saw that they were doing it here, um, it reminded me of when, um, do you remember when Haas did the Rich Energy deal? And I think they did their livery launch, was it the RAC? Yeah. That they did it. And it's just, I always find it quite funny when F1 teams rock up in these places because it feels it, it feels really out of place. I don't know how it was for you being there my guess is knowing you ed that this isn't your scene anyway but i if if i may politely suggest that you would feel out of place there anyway like i was when i went to where if it was the rac the royal automobile club i th- like i remember thinking like we had to dress in like like we had to dress up in suits 
basically to go there and I just remember thinking this this I know I'm at work but I really don't feel like I should, this I'm covering F1 <laughs> I'm not a banker you're casting outrageous aspersions over me though I'll have you know I wore a jacket oh, I'm not saying you did I'm, I'm not jeans it was very 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 presentable immaculately tailored you might say were you um were you wearing a neon green jacket no, but I was wearing a, a, a sort of pale green shirt, which was kind of on brand. It wasn't fluorescent enough for uh, this okay. particular team, but, what, but it did what get you a should few have comments. done is you should have jumped it. You should have dived into a to a, a, a Ryman's or a Smith's on the way and grabbed a packet of highlighters and just coloured in the edges of your shirt. That would have been better. Yeah, definitely tried to echo the striking, uh, striking new livery. But yeah, it was a it was a good event. They had a press conference. It was all effectively. It felt like it was in a bit of a crypt because it was downstairs and it was sort of this echoey room. And they had James Key and Alessandro Luni Bravi and the two drivers, Valtteri Bottas and Joe Guan Yu, up there. And we fired some questions at them. And then we had a bit of a chat. Had the chance to have a little bit of a chat to them separately. So we will hear from some of those key players later in this podcast. But it, it was not. It's nice to have a proper on-site launch the actual uh it's all that stuff that's good for us the actual launch thing that people may have seen streamed i was in the room for that but that followed just after uh for us so it's actually all the other stuff that's that's sort of the, the really useful material for us to get our teeth into I would actually say full credit to, to to Salba for how they handled this. I, I I really think this is we're gonna. I would imagine by the end of launch season we're gonna have a bit of fun and rank the launches again. And I have to say this is a is awkward because obviously it's one of the first ones. But this is um, it's like in the Premier League when someone scores an absolute banger in August and you're talking about it as a goal of the season contender. But th- but if this is exactly what. An F1 launch to be should be, isn't it? Uh, some a good amount of material under embargo in advance, a bit of trust there, letting you get your get uh, get your teeth into it before uh, a slightly awkwardly timed event. Imagine if we were having to deal with all of this from 7:30 p.m. in the UK onwards, um, making all of the key people available, the drivers, um, something for journalists, something for fans, basically something for everyone. It ticked a lot of boxes. I thought it was actually on a par with, I think, what Ferrari did last year. Not quite as good as Ferrari, but I would imagine it's very difficult to, if you're in um, London's Guildhall, it's kind of difficult to then parlay that directly into a shakedown of the car. No, they didn't give it a quick blast around the uh, around the city of London. Although it's quite quiet because not, not many people actually live there. It's very much a working place with all the financial centre and everything. So actually, it's quite quiet on the road. So maybe they could have done that. They might struggle to get up to the, the shakedown mileage, though. But yeah, there will be a shakedown for that car in the not-too-distant future. Do you know what day is that on? I've forgotten. Barcelona on Friday, I think. The, so this week, Friday, day, is it the 9th, I think? Friday this week. Open your calendars and check because I'm too lazy and too too much of an idiot. Right now, dates don't exist to me. It's just, is it a launch day? So tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow is the day between Sauber and Alpine. And then yes. the day you're after then is gonna Alpine. Be, you're, you're then going to have a massive problem when you get to um, red, the, the second Red Bull team's launch because that is happening in, is that in Las Vegas. So the time zones are going to be an absolute nightmare. I think that one ends up about Japanese Grand Prix time in, in Europe <laughs> when they actually reveal yes. it. So I think that's going to be an early Friday morning for people Good fun. Uh, to see that rather than that. But getting ahead of ourselves anyway. So it was much, a lot was made of the fact this is a, a new era for this team. Trying to make Sauber exciting for most people <laughs> is obviously quite a big challenge. Not for you. As, peop- as people know, I've always <laughs> had quite a soft spot for Sauber. But uh, Alessandro Luni Bravi, the team representative, as he's always referred to, but he's also the managing director of uh, of Sauber Motorsport, so he does have a, a real job, <laughs> other than just being a, a glorified spokesperson, which is what I always think team representative makes him sound like. So yeah, he's uh, he's a key player there. But he talked about the fact that they use this unleashed hashtag unleashed, and they said this unleashed mantra is all about their new brand essence which is black and fluorescent green and exciting and dramatic and, yeah, really, really thrilling. So what do you think of this new look, this new feel for Sauber? Is it feeling a little bit more rock and roll and a little bit less Swiss cheese? I don't even know what that means. I just I said the word Swiss. I could, it could have gone... It was either going to be cheese or cuckoo clocks, that wasn't it? That's completely thrown me. I, I didn't know where you were going to go with that, but that's not where I thought you'd go. Um that's completely spun me, sorry. Um, I think this is about what I would expect from Salba trying to go a bit rock and roll and trying to go a bit disruptive and different, but 
I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because it feels like it's not quite the right colour, but it kind of feels like what someone in the 1980s, if they were creating a futuristic film, would think that the future... Like, the colours that represent the future, black and neon something. It feels very Tron, that kind of... Flu- but obviously, like I say, green not quite the right colour, but that fluoro on black... Um, so, I mean, I quite like it, but that's because back when I was karting, I remember at one point my dad really liked putting fluoro colours on, on black. So there's one point where I had fluoro green on a black base on my cart. Um, so I've got a little bit of a, I, I, I've got a bit of time for it. Uh, I don't think, I don't think it quite screams modern and exciting and, and moving forward in quite the way that they think it does. But what I think it does do, and this is a, a serious point, and I think it does it quite well, is it very, very clearly distinguishes this mini period for the team from what came before it. It's very obviously not Alfa Romeo anymore, but it's also so obviously not Audi, and we know that this is all gearing up towards 2026, and Audi coming in as a works team with its engine and rebranding the team in full. It just carves out this two-year period properly as an interim phase. Not interim in that they're going to be treading water and just waiting around, but two years in which they do something different, two years in which they set the foundation for for Audi in 2026, and it just makes it its own thing. So I have no problem with them calling it the stake F1 team era. We're, We're probably going to be, for the foreseeable future anyway, referring to it primarily as Sauber because that that is what it is. And if we just keep changing team names every year, I think we're doing a bit of a disservice to the people listening and the people reading on the website and stuff like that. But I think it does serve a purpose. Yeah, and I think it's good that they've done something different. We complain that we don't get strident new liveries, and this is a very, very decent, uh, very, very different look. The only concern I've got is if it gets too close to a Yunkos IndyCar, which was quite similar, the, the, black and, the black and green one. Yeah, I had the same thought. I had the same thought. I haven't actually checked on social media. that They must, have, they must be about to have some fun with it if they haven't already, the, the Yunkos side, because that's so easy to just be just like, oh, Copied our homework, have you? <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got that uh, that vibe about it. But yeah, it'll be good, and it's they, they that's talk- not good, by the way. Like just thinking about it, because I love what they've done at Yunkos, and I think that it's a really fun story what they're doing out in IndyCar. But they are a slightly small. They're, well, they're a small underdog midfield to back marker team most of the time, aren't they? So if that's what Salva's replicating in terms of its um, imagery, it's not really conveying the image that they want it to. <laughs> I don't think Salva would want to be seen as a small midfielder back marker team they've not been that at all over the past year anyway <laughs> they're meant to be they're meant to be moving on from that yeah, well I, we're joking a little bit here being a bit unfair on them they have put a lot of effort into this there are reasons for this two-year transitional identity which is understandable and they've put some effort into it and all credit to them for putting on the launch and for trying to create a new look that car is going to look good they were talking about how cool it'll look under lights we'll obviously see that in Bahrain as early as testing in fact because they always run into darkness there shall we hear from Alessandro Luni Bravi to explain their new identity as he did talk about that during the launch for us, it was important after the Alfa Romeo, six years with Alfa Romeo to really establish a new team identity, you know, before the Audi era. It was important to present ourselves with this new, you know, new identity. And of course, it's important for a team like us to have commercial partnerships in place. So we take advantage of this, of the opportunity to have such a big partner like Stake joining us, like Kik to create this new team identity. Of course, Sauber Group is in Formula 1 from 32 years, but this doesn't mean that we forgot what Sauber is. This means that for these two seasons, we want to have this continuity and we want to create a new team identity that can also help us to attract a new audience, to reach a new audience, to expand our fan base, to present ourselves as new. So that's what it's all about. And of course, we will see this team becoming less stake F1 team and a bit more kick F1 team or some variation of that. They haven't actually formally said what it will be called in the, I think it's four or so territories where they can't be stake because it's uh, a betting company. So there's some laws preventing that. So you will see a little bit of a shift in that identity. But that's why we're 
often talking about them as the underlying team identity, which is Sauber Motorsport, which has obviously been on the Formula One grid since 1993. So there's some some good history there. But in terms of the, the general upbeatness and the new start, new beginning, doing everything better, aggressive car, do you feel positive about this team's chances going into the season Scott they were ninth last year very very tough season best finish of eighth only into Q3 I think five times so it was a hard year it was a hard year and they have to improve this season there has to be signs of on-track progress otherwise I do think alarm bells will be ringing over at Audi's headquarters I would say I'm optimistic for two reasons or two kind of cluster of reasons really Um, the first Reason, set of reasons relates to all the work that has been done to improve things then this is this goes beyond specifically what you see on the car because there's a, there's an ongoing upgrade project with the the wind tunnel last season they improved production and cfd um, infrastructure back at uh, Sauber's he- headquarters they're recruiting technical people all the time they've in- they've recruited more experienced race team personnel they've got new pit stop equipment becoming available this season so there's lots of things there where investment and this comes from the Sauber side and the Audi side as well in improving the race team and the technical team so you should theoretically have a team that is producing better, faster, more upgrades through the season and a race team that is executing better trackside. So for starters, I think they raised the basement of um, what their sort of potential should be. And the second thing is when you look at the car, and I'm not going to go into too much detail here because it's not really my place to, but there was a, there seemed to be a lot of low-hanging fruit from last season. They, they didn't seem to quite have the understanding that they needed to with the mechanical platform and... They just seem to be a little bit lost with quite a few fundamentals. So you just ended up in a situation where they couldn't run the car the way that they wanted to. The car was quite draggy uh, and it, it just wasn't an effective race car. But there's so many changes that have been made and all of them come back to kind of addressing these underlying issues, which makes you think, well, if other teams are starting to bump up a little bit against what's possible within these regulations, because you hear so much about convergence now, but actually Sauber's got, like I say, low-hanging fruit that it can grab. Again, boosting that basement um, a bit and also raising the, the 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 potential that they can shoot for versus last year. So it just makes you think, actually, there's reasons to believe that this team could make progress for this season and there's some early evidence to suggest they've done things specifically to achieve that that should achieve that we won't know until the car hits the track and we definitely won't know until we see if it's better in the second half of the season than the first half as that will show whether its development game has been upped but uh, I'm cautiously optimistic how how about you yeah it's a team that's going in the right direction I don't think we're going to see a sudden gargantuan leap forward but the field's quite condensed they have made some significant changes to the car. We'll hear from Gary Anderson. He'll do his analysis of it shortly. You'll hear that. And we also, I also spoke to James Key as well, the technical director. So there's plenty on, on the detail coming up. But they have done things and they have attempted to tackle some of those fundamental limitations. So they can certainly do better. And I think they should after that promising start to the new regs, which was aided a bit by being down on the weight limit, unlike a lot of others. They then dropped away second half of that season and had a difficult second year. But I think we'll start to see them getting back onto that upward trend. Nothing spectacular, but I think this could be a good tidy season for the team. And it's worth saying as well that Valtteri Bottas, who I also had a bit of a chat to, is quite upbeat about how the season could go in his third year, the last year of his current contract with this team. So let's hear what he had to say about the season to come and why he's hopeful there won't be too many visits to Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner this year. From what I've seen, let's say from 22 to 23 versus this period from 23 to 4, um, like I said earlier, I definitely like what I'm seeing because I see change. So I think we've learned a lot in the, in the last two years. And um, yeah, for sure, probably the, the concept we had with the car previously, there was almost like a certain limit how far you can go with the performance. So yeah, there's a whole lot of changes now in the team, which is good. So there is definitely much, much more potential than what we had in the last two years. and uh, But at, at this point, it's only talking because we don't know how, how big steps the other teams have been make, making. But I'm, I'm really um, positive and, and 
looking for much better better um, results. And obviously for you personally, it's important because you've had a fair amount of bad luck recently. We have a thing on the podcast called Valtteri Bottas Sympathy Corner when something goes wrong for you, when a, when a front wing gets flung under your car from someone else's on the first corner, when you have to give up a win, that kind of thing. So you do have your fair share of bad luck, don't you? Uh, I've, I've had some in my career, yes, for sure. But uh, I, I feel like eventually it has to somehow equal out between everyone. But um, yeah, I mean... I try to, yeah, let's see, every year, yeah, sometimes we have more luck, sometimes less, but uh, the main thing, like I said earlier, is I want to focus on, on my performance and our team performance. So not so much sympathy for you this year, that's I guess the hope. Yeah, hopefully no need for sympathy at all. So. Right, Scott, what do you make of Bottas? He's upbeat, he's hoping you won't have quite so much bad luck this year, and there'll be more reasons to be talking up some great performances He's got something to prove, hasn't he? Yes, I think so. I think there's been a naturally a little bit of focus on, you know, is Bottas enjoying himself a bit too much outside of F1? Is he sort of coming across as he's just not on a farewell tour, but just, you know, lapping lapping it up while he can? And I think that's a bit I think that's a bit unfair because because a lot of drivers have extracurricular stuff going on. And I also think we're just naturally exposed more these days because everything's on social media. To there's, drive only, this- there's only so much time he can spend standing near a lake uh, exposing bits of himself. Well, that, there, that can't take up much of his time. No, but to be fair, that's only half of his time. The other half, that, that's only a third of his time. The other two thirds of his time is spent trying different coffees and riding bikes on gravel. That seems to be the the, the quintessential Valtteri Bottas week. Um, but I, I love that he's been doing that and I love that he seems to have had more freedom to explore what he wants to do I love that he's got the confidence to to go out and do these different things and we saw at the start of 2022 and I think we saw in a slightly understated way last year still performing very well there are there's there, there are the usual Bottas weaknesses that that crop up but he's still a, a very good driver for a team like Sauber to have and a very good driver to have in F1's midfield so he just needs to have the opportunities to to show that again this year. I think that's the big thing. I'm not saying he was perfect last season, and I would like to see a step from him in terms of, I feel like you might need to blow Joe Guan Yu out the water a little bit this season, just to really ram home that he's a he's a serious player and he's he, he's he's doing what he can, whatever the the, the machinery is capable of. But I don't see any reason why he he shouldn't do well this this year. I've got. I don't believe Bottas has been phoning it in, really. No, he's been a bit erratic, but the team's been a bit erratic as well. So I think he's got a little bit of work to do, but I think we dismiss a driver of Bottas's calibre and experience at our peril. There's not many experienced Grand Prix drivers out there, and on his day, he can still be very, very effective, and he's still got a few years in him. He's just got to earn himself a new deal, either with this team or elsewhere. Talking of Joe Guan Yu, I also had a chat to him so he had quite an interesting approach to the season in terms of what he's trying to do. He's promising a few more fireworks. So let's hear what he had to say. You said you really want to bring everything together this year and start delivering at your maximum. What areas do you need to optimise to do that? Not just the, the general everywhere, but where are the key gains? I think firstly, consistency uh, throughout the whole of whole let's say year it's going to be such a key now with the fact 24 races and we have to be you know there's times that uh, I've been outperformed my teammates and there's times that uh, you know we have a very high but then there's times that I've been struggling maybe a little bit more with certain scenarios so this is the I think the key point and then the other thing is probably just be a lot more aggressive as a driver because I think first two years I set myself is that I want to not having too many mistakes which it's going to influence my whole career if I do mistakes year one, year two. So this is the year that I want to be out there just to show in the potential I got and just fight for every single opportunity this is. That's obviously a very difficult thing to get the balance right on, isn't it? Certainly you've been consistent. The mistakes have been relatively rare over the past couple of years. So how do you actually switch that mindset to successfully do that without going too far? I think firstly, you need to have this chances and belief in yourself at the first and especially like uh, the way how I approach mainly even the start first lap 
last year compared to first year is a massive difference. This year I want to take another further step. That, and then on the other hand, it's about, I think, the experience you gain from two years, you really understand where you can really put your car, where's the gap is kind of, you know, a chances for you to move ahead. And uh, for me, I think this year is the year that uh, I want to make sure like I get all the details ready really pre-season and then when, we, when we're on track in Bahrain, the goal, the target is very clear and we need to hit them, that's clear. And then we need to, you know, looking forward to the car because I'm sure it's a big change and if it is kind of the target, the number we, we had, then we're going to move up on the standings for sure and making a step. Then, you know, it's a big difference if you're fighting for P10, P9 or if you're fighting for top five. Of course, that top five, it gives drivers even more excitement that they really want to give it everything because that's where the chances are so yeah looking forward to this year and uh, it's going to be massive difference just a feeling of how the car will be so scott it sounds like a maximum attack approach from joe having had a couple of years of being a little bit conservative should we say do you think that's the right approach for him do you think he needs to show that just extra little bit of edge to go from decent safe pair of hands to something a little bit more than that I think so, yeah, because I don't think he stepped on enough last season in his sophomore campaign as he needed to. I thought he did a good job in his rookie year. I think he was quicker than people expected. I thought he raced very well and very cleanly in in general. He grabbed a few opportunities that, that were there and he was a little bit unlucky with the trajectory of the car's performance versus his own experience um, through 2022. But in 23, I don't know, I just didn't, there were times where he looked relatively good against Bottas, but I didn't feel like it was a driver who was making the impact he needed to to set himself up for a longer-term F1 career. And I, I think there are opportunities for Joe in, in F1, whether that's at this team or others. We've talked about this on other podcasts before, but he does. I, I want to see a bit more from him this year to show that that ability and that merited place on the grid is... It trumps the other assets, you know, the the financial contribution that he brings, for example. I, I think, I think he just needs to make a slightly stronger case for himself this year than he did in twenty twenty three. Yeah, and to be fair to him, as probably got the impression from listening to him, he knows that he's honest about his position. He's he's got some good strengths, as I I did did put it to him that he does a lot of those off track things well. He's pretty good technically. The team that work with him really like him. He's a very, very good person to work with, good emotional intelligence, that kind of thing that's been said of him. So there's quite a few boxes he ticks, but he's just got to find that extra edge of pace fundamentally. And yeah, he accepts that. So it's good that he knows what he wants to do. He's got to focus. He's. It's just a question of whether that more attacking approach leads to things going wrong or he can do things cleanly and really stake a claim. But I'm interested to see how he progresses this year. So two drivers there, neither of which is guaranteed a place at that team next year with with something to prove, which is always great to see. Don't you mean Sauber a claim? Well, yes. Kick a claim. <laughs> oh, the seconds. The seconds it took for that to land make me feel genuinely, terrible about genuinely myself. Genuinely, you said it, and I, I thought, what did I just say? Oh, the team, it's called Stake, yes. <laughs> Chain, the, it's the, always funny when you have to explain it. Exactly. These name changes are uh, befuddling. But yeah, I, I think, uh, I, like I said, I like it when there's a couple of drivers who've got something to prove. And realistically, Formula One drivers have got something to prove pretty much every time they get in the car. Well, they're not <laughs> going to stay there for that much longer. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Well, as always, our technical expert Gary Anderson has been running the rule over the car. He's taken a very, very close look at the C44. So here's his verdict based on what he's seen of the car so far. If we just take a look at the uh, the initial car, I mean, they say it's an ambitious project. Um, for, for every team, you know, these are ambitious projects. There's no way you can look at it any other way. You know, everybody is pushing to the limit to try and achieve a better car than they had last year. As far as what we've seen so far, there's nothing on it that sort of jumps out to me as being, wow, you know, they've really pushed the limits here. But that's because really, interestingly, what we see is not, probably not really the car that they're going to run. We go into some of the smaller detail from the front of the car. Um, you know, the front wing itself is a very shallow profile front wing. It's it's not got much camber in it at all. It's 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 a strange design of front wing. But again, you know, as I said, many many of these cars it's a bolt on component, so what's on there is not necessarily what's going to be on there. And again down the sides of the floor, there's no detail there relative to the level of detail you need to have. So again, that'll that'll all probably change. But they have gone to um, pull rod front suspension. Um, they have got, again, quite a lot of anti-dive on the front suspension. The front pull rod suspension will allow them to run with more rising rate on the front suspension. In other words, as the car compresses near the ground, the suspension rate, the sport in the car increases. And, you know, downforce increases at the square of the speed. So in truth, you really want this, the suspension to increase it something like that as well, to get support from it. And then that allows you to run softer springs for slow-speed corners, which is the understeer, but yet get the, the front-end stability in the high-speed corners and under braking. So it's all a package of what's inside the chassis, and unfortunately, those are the things that we don't see. They've retained their push-rod rear suspension, which again, I think is a reasonable solution because it does allow you to make the gearbox narrower at the bottom, which is, in theory, the diffuser. So the more the narrower you can make that, the better, because the maximum width of the diffuser and the maximum height of the diffuser is defined in the regulations. The only way, area you can encroach to make the diffuser bigger is to make the, the middle part smaller, a bit narrower. Um, so the, the biggest visual thing, obviously, is the, um, the radiator intake. Again, it's gone from a, a Ferrari-style radiator intake to a Red Bull-style radiator intake. Um, again, I think you know that all makes sense because you're trying to balance the flow in that radiator duct. The top front corner of the side pod with the air accelerating over it normally gives you some um, some lift in that area. And obviously you don't want a negative force lifting the car off the ground. So having the duct bill intake, a bit like the Red Bull, um, means that you've got an opening there. So that air accelerating over the top of there, instead of accelerating over on a surface, it ex- it's accelerating over on a hole. So it doesn't give you lift but it also manages the, the spillage when the radiator blocks up and just can't flow anymore, which probably happens from about 200 kilometres an hour upwards, then that, that flow will accelerate over the top of the side pod. Some teams have put a gully in the inside of the side pod, and uh, Sauber have got a gully in the inside of their, a small gully in the inside of their side pod. Again, that's to attract that flow and move it in as far as possible. Again, helping the, uh, the diffuser. So... The visual detail, um, again, as I say, it's, it's only what we see, but that's the biggest change. The, the, the leading edge of the underfloor looks about the same height. The profile of the outer splitter looks about the same profile. The sides of the floor, as I say, or the, the outer side of the floor, it doesn't have really any of the detail that it needs to have, so we have to wait and see really what they run there. Um, again, the, the, the front suspension is... Um, it's got its anti-dive on it and going to that pull rod. The combination of all of that means that the loads in the suspension are a bit less because the pull rod and the, the top wishbone top wishbone goes into a compression load. The pull rod 
is in a tension load. But, but the fact they could be separated quite a lot because, you know, the top wishbone is as high as you can get it inside the wheel. Um, means that the, the angle between the top wishbone and the pull rod is a bigger angle, so the loads are less. The problem with the push rod system is you want the bottom wishbone to be as high as possible, which means that the, the push rod to bottom wishbone angle is quite acute, so the loads are very, very, very high. So again, that, that reduces the loads, probably reduces the overall weight a little bit. It moves the mass of the, of the suspension system inboard down, which will reduce the CFG. Um, so, you know, that's a positive, um, if nothing else. And James Key was, was one of the guys that instigated the pull rod front suspension back in 2022 with McLaren, uh, at the same time as Adrian Newey did at Red Bull. So obviously similar lines of, of, of uh, thought. Like all of these things, all of these things, it all depends on the system itself and the geometry of the system, and we're not privy to all of that. But I think they've got the basis there to be okay. The side pods give me a, you know, a, bit, a little bit strange, I think. Um, they seem to have increased the, the undercut just at the, you know, at the front of the chassis as such, or at the front of the underfloor. They seem to have a, a bigger undercut there now. That's an area which is... You know, it's really reliant on the flow through there because the you're trying to use that that part of the car, that undercut section, to allow as much flow through there as possible, and getting it to be to exit the top of the floor surface where you want it to is critical to how the sides of the floor really work. So I'm not sure that a bigger undercut is actually a beneficial step. Sometimes you might want it to look a bit more aggressive. A bit like Ferrari last year, to be honest. You know, they they had a very quick outwash undercut. Now I'm not saying they were right, and and Red Bull are you know having a bigger undercut was wrong, but I'm saying there's probably quite a good compromise between the two somewhere to get that flow going outwards to see it help seal the floor off and to allow allow it going around into the coke bowl. The compromise there, I'm not quite sure what it would be, but they've also got a what well, I call a bit of a bulge on the side pod probably to house the cooling system inside there um, it's a bit of a strange bulge because I can't really see a reason for it other than the fact you have to put a radiator in these cars it sort of compromises I suppose that undercut maybe the two together the big bulge and the increased undercut maybe it works something, something similar um, if you hadn't got that big bulge you might have a more aggressive un- uh, a less aggressive undercut Time will tell what they end up running on the track. Interesting to see some of the other cars as well. And again, it's, you know, say with the, the radiator intake, the, the old Ferrari style meant that the radiator spillage would get pulled down into the low pressure area in that side pod undercut, which will affect flow there to some extent. And that flow is really something that to get the underflow working consistently, you need that flow to be consistent. Whereas with this new radiator layout, that airflow will be will go over the top of the side pod. So, and again, not as big an effect on important parts of the car as it is with the Ferrari style. Rollover bar area again is one of the visual places they've changed. They were uh, they had a single strut uh, rollover bar uh, for quite a few years now, to be honest. And um, it's one of these things I'm never quite sure because. Um, you know, distributing the load into the chassis is never easy. They had a, a bit of an accident at Silverstone and it snapped the rollover bar off or punched it into the chassis. Um, and I was a bit surprised in 2023 that they actually came back with a similar sort of rollover bar structure. But now they've gone, or it looks like they've gone to a more conventional route, which has got a A-frame rollover bar. Um, and that in itself, you know, you, I think you can distribute the loads better around the, the, the top of the chassis. Uh, or a bigger surface area. So you probably end up with a, a lighter package and being the highest point of the car, that lighter package is, is something positive because it will influence the centre of gravity height. So, um, you know, these little benefits all add up. So if uh, they all add up in the right direction, um, what I'm seeing is it's a car that'll look different whenever it runs. I'm pretty sure of that. But the, the main things that they sort of probably don't want to tell lies about which is the front suspension, rear suspension, rollover bar, um, etc., and, and the general sort of overall view of the car. I think it looks personally. I think it looks like a step forward, um, and I think that uh, they they have to take that. You know, it's time to take that step now, because it's only two years to um, to Audi.
put their name on the side of the car. And we know that car company the size of Audi, um, success they've had in motorsport, they expect it in Formula One. And it's, uh, it's something that cyber can be part of, but they have to, sh- to show now that they're, they're capable of it. Great stuff there from Gary. As always, we'll be hearing from him throughout launch season with his examinations of the car. So we'll have him looking at the Alpine in a couple of days' time. That's on Wednesday that they launch. But we also had the chance to speak to somebody who came through the Gary Anderson School of Motoring, the Jordan School of Motoring, James Key, who explains the aggressive approach, how they went about trying to realise that, what that actually means, the suspension changes, and gave us some extra insight into this new car and his influence upon it. I'm delighted to be joined by James Key, returning technical director of Sauber, your first Sauber launch for over a decade. But you've talked about the fact that this is a lot more aggressive, this car. So in technical terms, what does that mean? Can you run through the areas where this aggressive approach has been taken and what that actually means in terms of the design process? Yeah, I, I think when you when you talk about it, there's a few things you could apply to it, but fundamentally, it's a much more brave set of concepts. So if you... If you look at where these regs are sort of pushing teams, there's a, there's a great deal of refinement. There's ever more complex surfaces rather than components on the aerodynamic side um, and, and ever more complicated designs to try and facilitate that, which in turn require a great deal of kind of nuanced internals and uh, mechanical direction. So I, I think fundamentally, we, when I say aggressive, or when we say aggressive, I suppose for, for a design, it's, it's really pushing the boundaries of what you're able to do in a given area um, as best you can uh, to allow allow you more space to develop, let's say, aerodynamically or mechanically. Um, and we'll see that actually, I mean, the, the car we'll see on track has already developed beyond the car we're launching today, for example. And you'll, you should be able to see, if you compare it to last year's car, it's a significant step in refinement. Packaging, you know, that's been very aggressive. That's a good example of it. Suspension designs, internal and external and so on, are all pushed out a little bit extra. And based on the development that you've been doing, as you say, that's, that's not yet going to be on the car, is that performance tracker looking pretty positive? Is it yielding those hoped for performance gains that, from those new horizons you've opened up? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean uh, you know, as, I've, as, I, as I was saying earlier, you know, I, I, I came in quite late in the, in the project. So there's pros and cons with that, really. A, a is you can sort of get in, you've got something which is there, you can just sort of pick it up and run with it a little bit as a technical director. But... Also, you know, you're not there at the beginning of the process where maybe you would have decided to, to you know, p- p- pursue various directions which weren't, that weren't there. But to be fair, the team have done a fantastic job. Um, you know, over the, over the months leading, leading into when I arrived, at coming up with very brave ideas and concepts and directions, you know, they've, they're professionals. You know, they, they knew what they wanted to, to do, but they, they, they just got on with it. So, um, so yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's been good just to sort of step in and, and pick those up from... Where we left off, there's a few things I felt we needed to do and refine a little bit in certain areas, so we, we delayed those a little bit. There were other areas which I thought we needed to push harder, which the team have reacted to brilliantly. Um, and, you know, the, the car we'll see on track is a combination of a little bit of my influence where I've been able to, but a great deal of teamwork. I guess the obvious question to ask in terms of areas to push, because you were at McLaren last year where some interesting ideas were worked out, some very fruitful avenues, is some of that basic philosophical knowledge and the understanding you built up there has that fed into some of those late suggestions you've made not in terms of design detail or anything but just the basic areas you're looking yeah i mean to, to be honest i mean i didn't really answer your question fully before with the performance tracker and um it has looked positive you know i, I think it's it's been the car is alive very much alive with the new directions that the team is choosing and to be honest i think things are beginning we saw this last year things are dropping out into for most teams, a sort of a, a bit of a blueprint of how the bodywork kind of looks. You know, a downwashing side bod has become more and more popular. What you then do with that is where the nuanced details are and, and relies on your packaging and your directions. Floors, I think, are beginning to converge a little bit more in, in the details, and the devil really is in the detail with these cars and so on. So, so they did a lot of what I would have done had I been there earlier in many respects. Um, the knowledge, I... I I think the team knew what, what it wanted to achieve. For me, it's been about setting expectation and targets of where I think it needs to be. Um, and they tend to be high level. So rather than, I think you should change the radius on the front wing somewhere, it's much more we need this sort of characteristic. 
and that's more often than not just out of an understanding of what a car needs, not necessarily a particular car from my past. So, so in a way, I, I, I think it was more a case of taking this, I suppose, this blueprint in your head of what, what a car needs to be to be really successful and applying it to the Sauber status, if you will, and then, you know, effectively uh, start, starting along a new track with a different car. And as always, James Key, fascinating there. He's a great technical director to listen to. He always offers a lot of detail and insight and understanding. And he's certainly reveling in being back in his old stomping ground at uh, Sauber, having left there for Toro Rosso. I think he, he left in early 2012, didn't he? So, yeah, over a decade since he's been at a Sauber launch. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's move on to Williams now, Scott. And not only are you going to have to educate the listeners on this, you're pretty much going to have to educate me because while I was dealing with the Stake Sauber launch, you were dealing with the Williams season launch. They had a new livery on an old car, so no car to talk about, but lots to talk about with the team. Now, this was in New York, so I can I can see you're doing this from home. So you must have got back very quickly. <laughs> yes, uh it was uh, it, well. You factor in the time zone difference, and yeah, I basically just um, strolled through the door just just in time. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't there. I, uh, I I was I was there in spirit and in Zoom call, speaking to Alex Albon, James Vowles, and Logan Sargent. So it's quite interesting. Um, no car to talk about. No livery to talk about. Really, it's just an evolution of what they already had. I think it looks quite smart though, and I love that. Though I, I actually quite like that they have they've got a brand going there now in terms of the 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 color scheme it's a bit consistent doesn't look like a finished toothpaste brand or anything like that like it did in that do you remember in the sort of like in in that rocket era of Williams a few years ago where it just looked really quite too bob um which which wasn't great Uh, I I think they look quite smart now um a few more commercial partners around the place Val's reckons that it shows that the team's come on leaps and bounds in the last 12 months in terms of its um commercial weight um while also having that big nod to to williams heritage um but plenty to talk about um off it so i I, i'll let you seeing as you don't know and i can as you put it educate you ed i can let you pick do you want to talk about the pros the where the where the fw46 is at and why it's basically late do you want to talk about Logan Sargent feeling like a new man having been urged to shock the world by James Vowles or do you want to hear about Alex Albon's contractual situation and where Williams is in the driver market looking ahead to 2025? Well I want to hear about all those things of course but that Alex Albon contract situation interests me because the one thing that did catch the eye is the talk about him being under contract for next year which interested me because there are a number of parties involved who are absolutely adamant that he's out of contract next year. So that makes me wonder what the reality is here and whether we've got one of those situations where you've got somebody who is under contract but may be able to leave that contract under certain circumstances. So who said what? What exactly is going on here? 
Yeah, exactly. At the very least, we've had indications that Albon would be a free agent or could be a free agent at the end of 2024. But James and there, Vowles, are, there are other teams that believe that as well. Yes, and uh, James Vowles... But James Vowles has come out and clarified. He's seen the rumours on social media suggesting, I think over the last three weeks or so, Albon has been replacing Carlos Sainz at Ferrari. We all know that's not happening now. Uh, he has been, he's become the front runner to replace Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes and he's got a three-year Red Bull contract in his pocket. Uh, not, all of these things can't be true, but it could be that none of them are true. Vowles basically says, at best, this is speculation. He's playing it down massively, saying that there's basically no- nothing in this because, as he pointed out, Albon's actually under contract until the end of 2025. That is Williams's position on this, which theoretically removes Albon from all of that driver market speculation. We know that's not really the case because there could be clauses, there could be um, not necessarily an option, but there could be um, any kind of agreement, agreement, formal, informal that Albon would be allowed to go if certain teams came in for him. Um, There could just be a simple case of Williams says, this is the price if you want to buy him out of the contract. So this doesn't mean that Albon will be at Williams in 2025. And he actually was asked a couple of times where his focus is and if he is definitely going to be at Williams next year. And he didn't say that's the case. He said, let's see. He said, time will tell. He did quite a good job, actually, of dancing between all of the bullets that were being fired at him. But his point was that he feels he deserves to be in a car that can fight for wins and podiums. And he'd love that to be with Williams. And his focus at the moment is all on doing what he can to get Williams into that position. But it was a very strong underlying hint of, and if I can't get that Williams sooner rather than later, I'm going to need to go to a team that can give me that if such a team is interested in me. So, Quite an interesting situation developing here. I've been saying for a while that the problem Williams has got is that Albon's fast outgrown that team. And I think it could come to a head this year if Williams, because Williams is still on a medium to long term trajectory really to get where Albon's saying he wants to be as a driver. And Albon's ready to be there now. And, And that's a clash, isn't it? That's a clash that has to be reconciled one way or another. Otherwise, it'll come to a head this year. Yeah, it's an interesting scenario. And I would say if you're Williams, you'd be very, very keen to keep Albon and do everything you can also to make sure that you keep an enthusiastic Albon. Because if it's a question of other teams that are slipping around, people always say if someone wants to leave, you can't keep them there necessarily if there are other bigger opportunities. So it'd be interesting to see how that one plays out. And ultimately, without Alex Albon, they don't finish seventh in the Constructors' Championship last year. And that's worth a lot of money to them. So, yeah, very, very significant player in that team and ideally a driver they should be building around. But very interesting to see there's, yeah, some some slight gaps there that may be just the starts of, of cracks showing. Shall we talk about Logan Sargent as well? Yes. Is he going to, what do you say, he's going to do shock the world, a new man? Yeah, I can't remember. I need to, I need to double check exactly what it was that Vowles said. But basically, we heard from Logan first, and, and he was really interested on his um, physical preparation because I, I'm always fascinated with um, how second-year drivers then go into the start of their second year, having been able to prepare for it, now having the knowledge of what F1's really like, because they all basically undershoot. They all think that they're taking it as seriously, seriously as they need to and that they know what it's going to require of them. And they don't underestimate it as such, but they get in and the reality is just, it's just that little bit more intense in every area. But I would say some of them do underestimate it. It's just very few of them admit it. The one recent one I remember was Yuki Tsunoda yes. recently. Who I, met, I interviewed him at Monaco in the first year and he basically said, yeah, well, testing went well, and I thought this is going to be quite easy, just like step up from F2. But actually, this is this is really tough. I underestimated it. And yeah. I really respected him for doing that. Usually, you get those admissions five years down the line or something. But <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, Yuki it, was it, flat out. That was, he but was, but it, uh, is, it, it is an experience they all go through, because also, now more than ever, there's such a big difference between being in a, in a single car formula like F2 and F3, and pretty much the whole ladder is that way now, and going into F1. So it's a big, big chasm, not just in terms of the level that everyone's operating at, but all those challenges. So there's a huge learning curve. You learn so much in that first year, which, of course, is good news for Logan Sargent because that means there's big potential. Yeah, and basically what he found last year is that um, physically he wasn't quite ready for the 
the duration of the season. Um, and this isn't obviously he was quite high profile in being one of the people that suffered so much in um, Qatar. But this was way before then that he he, he realised it. Um, well, the interesting thing is that drivers always they get to their fitness, don't they? Then with all the travel, they tend to get a bit of a deterioration. Yes. And there's not much you can do, even with doing training every time you can. It, it, it's yeah. really hard. And that's the point. So he basically says, and I completely agree with him, I don't think this is PR nonsense at all. He says he, he realised in season that he needed more, but you can't, you can't build that in season. You basically have to wait until the off season so that you can actually do all of your training, which he's doing very differently uh, this season, according to Vals. But the way Sargent put it was he, he said he feels like a different man compared to 12 months ago. He's physically fitter than ever. He's more equipped for the demands of F1. He felt that basically through last season, he let himself get drained physically and that affected him a bit off track. And then he took that on track with him. But as an as an example of the, the difference, because Vals, the way Vals put it is that um, their approach to Sergeant's physical preparation and training is completely different to where he was a year ago. Sergeant's five kilos heavier than he was this time last year. Like that's that's a massive gain. Um, so fair play to him because he's clearly not put that on just by you know eating donuts uh, all winter or anything like that. He didn't fill up on uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners or, or anything like that. Um, he's it's it, it'll be like um, a few drivers found when the rules changed a few years ago and they realised that they could put muscle on. So absolute all credit to him there. And the reference I said to like shocking the world or whatever, uh, that was Val's line. I can't remember exactly the. I'm sure he said uh, we we challenged him to shock the world or surprise the world. I think in terms of his intensity of physical preparation and the physical transformation. But I just thought it was quite a nice Valsism. Yeah, he's got a good turn of phrase as James Vales. But I'm interested to see how Sargent does because there were, as I kept saying, and I probably said this about 100 times on the podcast last year, there were lots of promising signs and it was just n- meshing everything together. And there was there was good progression throughout the year, not quite as much as I like I would like to have seen. And I think you can make a case that he's been a little bit fortunate to hang on to the drive. If there were very strong alternative candidates, particularly with experience, he might have been in trouble. But equally, I think there's still potential there for him to get things together and take a, a big step. So I'm really fascinated to see how he does in the in the coming season. What was the other option? That was hints about the Williams FW46. So what, what do we know? Yeah, so it's quite an interesting story around the FW46. And be, we'll, we'll be exploring it in more detail um, in in the coming weeks, especially around the, the car actually being revealed, I think, at the shakedown in Bahrain. And when I say shakedown in Bahrain, you, Ed, I imagine will have noticed this, but um, eagle-eared listeners? What would be the ear equivalent of eagle-eyed? I don't know. But uh, carefully paying attention, listeners, that rolls off the tongue, um, will remember that Williams shook their 2022 and 2023 cars down at Silverstone relatively well in advance of going testing so there's a disconnect here why Bahrain why the day before pre-season testing so I asked Vals is the car effectively late Um, and is there a reason for that not is it deliberately late but you know have you done stuff that is there a is there a reason basically and he to all he basically said yes it is it is late but it's in a kind of justification kind of way, it's late for the right reasons because Vows we heard in from March last year when he took the job was constantly talking about breaking systems at Williams and causing problems in the short term to fight to to bring benefits longer term. So, without getting bogged down in too many details, he's talked about different using different technologies but also methodologies in the concept of conception of the car. And then the early development of it, which has basically meant that the that the process, I think, has been slower than the normal, which isn't a huge surprise when you have a team like Williams kind of set in its ways, pivot into a new way of working. And Vals admits that they take they've taken a big risk by doing that for like basically changing that much and pursuing a car with different um, characteristics, very different characteristics they hoped to last year in kind of one winter while changing all the other stuff as well. So it's just taken longer. And to the point of not shaking down at Silverstone, he basically said, well, what's the point? Because it's probably going to be rain. It, well, it could be rainy and windy and irrelevant. And you've cut back like a, a week or several days worth of 
digital simulation that you could have done and then run the car in more relevant conditions in Bahrain just before the test and also then you bank a filming day for later in the year when they might want to do some actual filming or uh, validate some other stuff that they want to try on the car or, or whatever so they're in a an interesting position especially for a car that does sound like it's going to be quite different both the drivers have talked about it responding differently on the simulator needing a different driving style to its predecessor hoping it's going to become a more well-rounded package a, a car that works on more circuits but it's um it's an interesting narrative i can't remember the last time i heard an f1 team talking in these kind of terms ed yeah well, i think it shows this is a team with a plan isn't it they're doing things for certain reasons they're there's method in the approach. As long as it's not just a big justification. Well, that's the big problem. Ultimately, if you're behind, it will show when you run. So their shakedown is the day before the Bahrain test, isn't it? So they're February the 20th. And we know Haas are running on the 19th, but that's the second time that Haas has run because they're running, I think, on the 11th at Silverstone, aren't they? So, yeah, they're, they're, they're a little bit behind in that regard. Haas will have a whole extra filming day uh, done by the time uh, the Williams runs. But, yeah... As long as the car works, it's fine. And obviously there is an advantage to an extent in being late because that gives you more time to throw things at the car. I think probably there's a certain amount of um, justification going on in this. It may be they've been a little bit ambitious with a few things and it's tripped them up a few times. But there's no reason why it would be a 29 scenario, let's put it that way. But it's it's positive if for them, provided they can get some of those fundamental problems of the car fixed that wind sensitivity the fact that the yeah the front locking so such a big problem Alex Alban said that was only really 25% fixed last year and that was something they really wanted to fix so there's some fundamental things they need to get sorted as well as just the amount of downforce they're producing in order to have a car that can even repeat what it did last year championship wise yeah you can um, you can probably tell where I'm going to be going at pre-season testing Bahrain very well, very good. But I, I will be going trackside. Turn, turn nine, ten. I think I will be. Yeah. Um, actually, it was quite interesting when uh, Alvin was talking about that because when he said he's he can, it has a different feeling and a different driving style in the simulator. He said that the forty five had quite consistent limitations, and it was quite amusing as he sort of reeled off where it was limited. And he said low speed, under braking, and high speed long corners, which is you know a reasonable makeup of most tracks on the calendar. Um, when when it goes in a straight line and has to break in a straight line, it's really good. And um, when it had and, and it was driving into a driving into a headwind would often fix a lot of those long corner problems, wouldn't it? It would just help. Um, I remember Zanvort being one particular example of that. But he just feels that in the simulator you can see these areas are improved. But he said it that does come also from a different driving style because the car's behaving in a way that means you need different inputs. Um, uh, to get the most out of it and then because you're putting different inputs also you're then reacting to the car in a different way because the car's then doing something different in response to your different inputs so it's quite an interesting balancing act and it's only when the car runs on track that they'll know how much that's translated and Bahrain will be a great test for it because I joke about going to 9 and 10 but Albin's been saying for the last two years that's the place that exposes their weakness so logic dictates it will show whether they've made a clear improvement or not well it's a great place it's that approach to the left-hander onto the back straight so I love your it bra- you're breaking and turning so it's a nightmare for the unloaded front wheel in particular so yeah that is a great uh, a great test so if Williams can make progress on that then they could be looking at a, a decent season but no new car to talk about there yet so we'll have a good look at that and get Gary Anderson taking a close look probably on site in Bahrain actually when he gets the the chance to do his analysis of it see what he thinks but yeah it's nice to get a little bit of an idea about where Williams is at so they get to be part of the launch season party. It's just a shame that it clashed with the uh, with the state Sauber launch. That was odd. Only 10 teams. Perhaps that's why they didn't want an 11th team in F1. If 10 of them can't avoid the odd clash when it comes to launches, they don't want an 11th in there. But that's a, that's a whole other story. Well, it's a less spurious reason than some of the ones that we were actually given. <laughs> yes, yeah. We better not get into that right now, but that is going to be a topic that's going to be talked about more because I think that's going to be quite a popular talking point come Bahrain. In fact, there's a lot of talking points that are not about the new cars and the new season that will be on the agenda come Bahrain. 
But of course, we will talk through every single launch over the next couple of weeks and we'll be there on the ground in Bahrain. So thanks very much, Scott, for your insights on Williams and Sauber. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there about those launches. Check out our other podcasts, including the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, Bring Back V10s, our IndyCar Formula E and MotoGP podcasts. And also if videos your thing, head to YouTube for long and short form videos. There's a great analysis of the Sauber voiced by our very own Scott Mitchell Malm that should be there right now. Well, we've got eight more new cars to talk about coming up, so stay with us for everything you need to know from F1 launch season. The Athletic.